Welcome to the Arts and Humanities podcast for the 5th of November 2008. Today we have a recording from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This was a research seminar given by Dr Simone Murray, who is a senior lecturer in Communications and Media Studies at Monash University, Melbourne, Australia. This talk is introduced by Dr Claire Squires. Based in the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies, um, for a couple of weeks um, as a visiting fellow in association with the School of Arts and Humanities um, Institute of Historical and Cultural Research. <coughs> what she's doing, um, she's currently um, engaged in an Australian Research Council discovery project for a forthcoming book um, called The Adaptation Industry, um, looking at uh, books and other media. So into film, into digital media, etc. And that's what she's doing, some of the research that she's doing while she's based in the UK um, for a few weeks. And as part of that, um, she's actually been looking at the Booker Prize archive and thinking about um, adaptations of literary prize winners. She's also the author um, in 2004 of a book entitled Mixed Media, Feminist Presses and Publishing Politics, which was looking at uh, feminist publishers, including Virago, the Women's Press, etc., from the 19. 70s onwards. She's actually going to be talking on a, a slightly different topic to both of those things um, tonight and she's going to be looking at um, open access but with particular regard to literary culture and her title is Remix My Lit Towards an Open Access Literary Culture. So over to you Simone. Great, thank you so much Claire for the introduction. So to kick off with what we're speaking about or I'm speaking about today I just thought I'd give you a bit of structure because when, when I was an undergraduate I used to love it when lecturers started out by telling you what they were going to do so you could make sense of your notes afterwards. So the, the bare bones of what I wanted to do is talk a bit at the beginning about open access, what open access is, what some of the debates about mm -hmm. it are. And then in the second part of the lecture, I was going to move on to look at some of the challenges that digitization is presenting to publishers from all sorts of directions. And then in the third part, to have a look at the way we might be able to think about an open access literary culture, something that hasn't been touched on very much, but there are some really exciting developments going on in that sort of area. So it starts sort of general and gets more specific as it, it builds up to the end. So what I want to do in this paper is, is look beyond analysing only those kinds of issues that are preoccupying the literary and the publishing worlds at the moment, and to look forward. I wanted to ask what might the near future of the literary sphere look like under the, under the impact of digitization? And in particular, how might this networked architecture that we have based on the internet open up some new possibilities for writing and for publishing? I think it's fair to say that our whole conception of the author, I mean that with a kind of capital A author, is itself a very recent product of the Gutenberg age. And now that we have a networked architecture of the internet, we might be able to rethink the idea of the author and how the author functions in a 21st century print culture. So to start with some background on, on open access, some of which uh, I know is very well known to some people in the room, but other people might be coming to the term for the first time. So I wanted to give a bit more background. 2008 has been the year of open access. It's been absolutely the buzzword of the publishing industries in this year. And the whole power of the open access idea lies in sidelining commercial publishers. 
anyone who's just enrolled in an MA in publishing might be thinking, why on earth have I done this and got myself into debt when they're about to be sidelined? But open access actually plays out in some more specific ways. So under an open access model, researchers, principally academic researchers, can publish peer-reviewed scholarship straight away without waiting for journals to uh, issue their papers. And most importantly, it can be accessed free of charge. That research can be accessed by anybody who has an internet connection. And the origins of the open access movement lie in a graph that you can see there, and the detail of which isn't so important. It's more the radically escalating two lines at the top. This is a kind of graphical representation of what's been called the serials crisis uh, in academic libraries that's been going on over the last few decades. And what this is, is for-profit commercial journal publishers have been rapidly hiking the subscription prices for their journals. And this has particularly gone on in what's called the STM, the scientific, technological and medical fields. And the commercial publishers have been doing this because they know that any academic research library worth its name is going to have to keep shelling out the money to buy the subscriptions for these, um, for these journals. Otherwise, their academics will um, start pounding on the doors of the library and, and insist they do this. Academics need that access to the most recent research. And the, the impact of this kind of cynically profit-maximizing policies have been particularly, uh, particularly negative for the developing world. As the serial subscription prices for journals increased by 207% between 1986 and, and 1998. It means that the number of serials <coughs> that libraries can afford to buy goes down, and the number of books that they can afford to buy goes down too, because the serials take up more and more of the library's budget. Now, what really stuck in academics' craws about the serial crisis is that uh, the general public, namely you and me, were actually subsidizing commercial publishers three times over. First of all, we as taxpayers pay academic <laughs> salaries in publicly funded universities like mine and Oxford Brookes. And secondly, in the sciences, um, scientific researchers often pay a fee per page of their article published, so they, they pay out this money to the journal publishers. And thirdly, publicly funded universities like this one then have to buy the subscription to the journal. So three times over, the general public is getting hit at, uh, to the benefit of the commercial journal publishers. And it's that disgruntlement, a kind of sense that this is a wrong situation, that has led to the rise of the open access movement, where the researcher publishes online and it can be read immediately and for free, cutting out the middleman of the academic journal publisher. And the push for open access publishing has been strongest in science, technology and medicine. Again, the, the details of this particular slide are not so important, so if you're stuck right up the back there, don't panic too much. Um, this is a typical example of a conference that was held in Brisbane, actually, in Australia, um, earlier months of this year, that was about open access. And it, it's interesting to note that the speakers invited to this were from the Science Commons, uh, scholarly information, Microsoft, <laughs> computers and um, organisations for nuclear research. So all very much science and technology publishers. Here in the UK, institutes like the Wellcome Trust that fund medical research have started to insist that anyone who gets a Wellcome Trust grant needs to put their published research in an open access repository. So the public who paid for that research can access that research for free. Uh, and other 
research councils here in Britain and particularly in the US and also in Australia are moving towards embracing open access like this. But it's all been very science. Open access has actually taken much longer to get off the ground in the humanities and the arts, which are fields that are perhaps closer to our interests here. Until that was, earlier this year, in February 2008, Harvard University decided that all of its academics in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, they unanimously voted in fact, that every academic when they published a journal article would immediately put it in the university's open access repository. And as we in the academic world know, when Harvard sneezes, the whole world catches cold. When Harvard, as the world's top ranked university, does something, the rest of the world sits up and takes notice. So it wasn't all that surprising then, within a few months again in 2008, we saw the launch of a humanities open access series of journals. And these were, you can see a number of them here, they're mostly in critical and cultural theory. And the editorial board listed down on the right consists of very impressive names like Stephen Greenblatt and Lawrence Grossberg, big wheels in literary and cultural studies. And so we can start to see that open access is moving beyond just that scientific base and starting to infiltrate the research culture of the humanities. These are journals, but in another interesting move, theses and books are starting to go open access as well. This is Columbia University Press based in New York and their Gutenberg E project, where they took uh, PhD students' history theses and with their consent, put them online, enabled all the photographs and the music samples or architectural drawings, depending what the thesis was on, enabled all of these to be accessed by anyone via an internet connection. So not only did 2008 see open access move into humanities research, it moved into books as well, not just, not just journal articles. But there's a restriction here, of course, which is printing out a journal article that you found online is a pretty uh, plausible thing to do, or reading it on screen is even possible. But if you were gonna print out an entire academic monograph, you'd be blowing your internet service provider bill and probably ruining your eyesight to boot. So there's a kind of natural limit, it seems, on just how much length an open access document could be. So all of this is, is in terms of surveying what open access is and its history. But what I specifically want to ask here is, is could we roll out open access principles to embrace not just book publishing, but fiction publishing, potentially? I, I mocked up a sort of um, YouTube-esque, how far have we got up to model here, uh, to summarize what I've been saying. So scientific, technological, and medicine already happening. Um, humanities and law journal publishing announced scholarly monographs, Gutenberg E-Press, just starting to happen. Could the next stage in the process actually be fiction? There seem to be some immediate arguments against that idea, making you think it couldn't happen. I mean, the first one is that most open access scientific research is paid for by the public, and most authors in literary fiction circles, as we know, subsidize their own productions. But if you think about it, with cultural policy initiatives like, say, um, the British Council or UNESCO or the City of Oxford, increasingly fiction writers are actually starting to be subsidised, at least in part, by grants that are derived from the public purse. So maybe there's not as much difference here between scientific researchers and fiction authors as we might initially think. A second way in which the two are coming together is that creative writers used to be employed, well, insofar as they were employed, used to sit in their garret at home, um, starving in a romantic and artistic way, and not actually work in a workplace. 
But as creative writing courses have increasingly become part of universities, including this one, including my own, we are seeing creative writers more often employed on the university payroll as tutors and lecturers in creative writing. So again, the author and the scientific researcher are coming together in a more similar way. And the third one, and I think this is the real nub of it, the third potential difference between scientific researchers and authors is that academics don't live on their book royalties by and large and creative writers do. Um, I, as Claire mentioned, I've written a book and if I had been living on my book royalties I would have made the princely sum of £500 over about 10 years of work. So I'm really, which I bought a necklace with, how about that? But uh, I'm really, really glad, not this one, I'm, I'm really, really glad <laughs> that uh, I don't live on my royalties. But fiction writers in the past have tended to. So I think this is the real nub of the difference between the two groups. But before we see that as a way of defeating the argument that open access could ever apply to fiction, I want to step back a bit and move into the second part of this paper and think about the way in which the contemporary literary world has seen all sorts of developments which are delinking the idea that the publisher is central to the value chain of print culture. I think what we're seeing here is a delinking of that author-publisher-reader chain that's been fundamental to print culture since the dawn of the Gutenberg age. So what are some of these pressures? Is this, is this diagram of Robert Danton's um, communication circuit one that everyone is yawningly familiar with already? Uh, wait, by the end of your master's degree, you're going to know this so well. Every single print culture subject seems to come back to this at some point. But what it is basically is uh, a quite famous model Robert Danton, who's now at Harvard University, dreamt up in 82, which shows at the top um, an author, a publisher, moving down onto the right, printers, shippers, booksellers at the bottom, and readers on the far left. And what he was trying to show is this is like an electrical circuit, the way that print communication moves from creator to reader. And just like an electrical circuit in your science lessons at high school, unless the circuit's completed, the bulb won't light up. Unless you move all the way around from author at the top, through publisher, printer, shippers, agents, over to readers, you won't have a proper communication. Interestingly up here, authors can only communicate with readers via the publishers. You note that the, there's a dotted line joining the author up here and the readers down here. And I, I think Danton assumes that the only way an author and a reader could interact would be, say, fan mail that uh, perhaps a reader might send, for example, to a publisher. But it's a dotted line and that suggests that this kind of communication in 1982, according to Danton, was pretty unlikely to happen. But almost everything on Danton's model is in flux. This, this is no longer a very compelling picture of what print culture looks like. And it's because of a concept called disintermediation, which my media studies colleagues like to use a lot, meaning to cut out the middleman, to take the publisher out of the equation and have the reader and the uh, author talk to each other directly, which is, of course, the essence of that open access principle. So what if, contrary to what Danton said, writers and readers were simply to start communicating with each other directly. What would that mean for print culture? Well, just to elaborate on some of the ways that this model that Danton's thought up is really under pressure in the 21st century, we can look at a couple of examples. 
Uh, the hypertext novel that was the, the next big thing in the mid-1990s. What we see here is a narrative that's read online, you click through the links. Shelley Jackson's Patchwork Girl, which was a kind of pastiche of uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, was one of the most famous examples of this. And so these kinds of novels, when you go into them, rely on you clicking through the links, making choices, and mapping your way through a narrative. And obviously that kind of narrative could not have existed in print form. It isn't reducible to print form, unless you're talking about choose-your-own-adventure novels um, from the 1980s or something of that kind. One of the big advantages of these hypertext novels was that they could also incorporate sound effects and animations. Um, when these PowerPoints are uploaded, you might like to click through this link and have a look at Red Riding Hood, an animated hypertext novel again from the 1990s, which uses this sort of technology extensively. So here again, we were seeing a way for readers and authors to talk directly. But the hypertext novel, despite a lot of buzz, as we know, didn't really take off after the 1990s. It seems to have been uh, a flash in the pan. When we, in courses like this, talk about uh, digital books today, we're much more likely to talk about a second generation of ebook readers, for example, the Sony Reader um, from 2006. And these handheld portable reading devices typically replicate the experience of the codex book as closely as possible, turning page functions, annotating down the side. And publishers have a role here too, because publishers typically own and license the content that appears on these digital book readers. So while the hypertext novel was going to cut publishers out of the loop, here the publisher with the ebook has been able to come back into the equation. But it hasn't been all um, beer and skittles for the publishers, because you'll notice that Often the companies making the electronic handheld readers are not publishing companies. Sony, an electronics company, Hewlett Packard, obviously an IT company, and Amazon Kindle, another interesting development that seems to put Danton's model under pressure. A book retailer now connecting the reader and the author without the publisher coming into the picture. So it's as though another part of Danton's communication circuit has uh, sort of declared war on publishers and put, put them under pressure from a new angle. And that's particularly so with a more recent development. The Kindle was announced in 2007. But if you explore the Kindle site on Amazon, you see they also have what's called a digital text platform where they invite authors to upload their book as a Word document directly to Amazon. And then Amazon will sell it on as a Kindle e-book. So here, again, bookseller, seeming to cut the publisher out of the picture. And there was more. Print on demand, another way in which publishers came under pressure in the last 15 years. This time it was from the printers and binders, one of the nodes on the right-hand side of Danton's network. So print on demand is similar. It's where you get a digital file distributed over a network and then print it on a complex looking machine like this at the other end. And that will give you the printed text of the book, the cover of the book stuck on, and a codex book that looks familiar. So it isn't an e-book, but it's a book made and printed through electronic technology. So printers and binders coming in on the picture. And then the only part of Danton's circuit that hadn't already um, attacked publishers and, and declared a rebellion 
Authors Self-Publishing, a site like lulu.com, quite well known, uh, where you can have your own book created. You upload your Word document, your family history, your unpublished novel, whatever it is, and authors are able to self-publish. It's actually free for the authors, but if any books get sold, Lulu, the website, takes a cut of any books that are sold. And Lulu has been really astute in its publicity um, by sponsoring what you may already have heard of, the Booker Prize for the best blog uploaded as a Lulu book and then turned into a hard copy book. These are the winners from um, 2005 and 2006. The one on the right, interestingly, written by a serving GI in the US military who wrote a blog about his daily experience of the war in Iraq. Turn, and after it had been turned into a blog, submitted it to Lulu, had it published that way, and then Lulu used the Booker Prize as a way of giving attention to this new digital book hybrid, um, the blog book. So by the time that the um, authors, the readers, the printers and binders, and the electronics company had all put publishers' role under pressure, publishers were understandably getting extremely nervous. This is 15 years of, of turf wars that threatens to erode their business model. But publishers are fighting back. They're fighting back against these sorts of open access and disintermediary policies. We saw that with the Random House versus Rosetta Books case that went to the Supreme Court in the US. And in that case, Random House actually lost. They declared that the digital rights to authors' books actually lay with the authors or the authors' estates. But publishers didn't take it lying down. And I think the Google litigation with Google Library Search and the Publishers Association in the US shows that publishers are determined to hold on to these digital rights so they can remain part of the communication circuit in the 21st century. And this is uh, the Bodleian Library here in Oxford is actually one of the libraries allowing this sort of scanning. Yeah, it, people are familiar with the Google Book Search case being ongoing for several years now. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's still no judgment. So the writers groups and the publishers groups are still at loggerheads with Google uh, and they're still litigating this through the courts. HarperCollins decided not to wait for the Google uh, litigation to be settled. And if you look on HarperCollins' website, they've decided to one-up Google and do their own Google. What they've done is put all of the HarperCollins books online and made them fully searchable, not just the titles and not just the authors, but the whole text of the book, as you can see up here on the right. You can look for any key term in any HarperCollins book by using their database. So what this is clearly uh, is a scheme to keep their digital book content in-house to keep it under their own intellectual property control and not to allow the uh, IT companies like Google to take over the book industry and erode the role that the publisher like HarperCollins used to play. So if we think about all these developments, everything seems to be in flux. Digital books, e-books, print on demand, book scanning projects, author self-publishing. It can somehow be difficult to see the general patterns emerging when all the heat and dust is being thrown up from the battlefield. But an overall tendency does seem to be appearing. Uh, and I think it's this, that the neat apportionment of the book pie that had been settled by and large for many centuries has been radically shaken up by these network technologies. And all of the stakeholders in print culture that Danton outlined, and now also mm -hmm. industries from outside of the traditional print world, are all determined to increase their share 
of the rights pie and to do that at the expense of publishers. So it does become increasingly possible, not just in the academic journal sector, but also in the more general sector, to think about publishing without potentially publishers. So in, in the, third, um, the third section I want to look at here um, is focusing on the literary developments in particular and what this um, difficulty for publishers might mean in terms of literary culture. Again, a, another kind of YouTube-ish model here. What we can see is that particularly with the phenomenon of self-publishing, that ability to upload your book to Lulu, what we see is there's clearly widespread public enthusiasm for using the interactive capabilities of digital technology to transform the traditional format of the book. And this is part of a desire on the part of readers, I think, to throw off the idea that reading is just a passive activity where you get what you're given and then you read it silently on your own. Readers are wanting to have more of the creative limelight that's been occupied for authors for a very long time. Now, of course, this desire of readers to be active is, is not new. Um, we can think about this maybe as a continuum model where we've got two extreme positions on either pole. Um, on the far left-hand side is an idea that you get in literary studies is that the author is God. The author determines everything about their text and the way it's received. And then on the far right-hand side, you've got an idea that Alvin Toffler actually coined in his famous book, Future Shock, the idea of the prosumer, which is a telescoping together of producer and consumer, where consuming becomes a productive, creative act. And then all along that continuum in the various shades of grey between those two extremes, we can see evidence of readers wanting to be more active, of readers wanting to be more creative. So, for example, um, the hypertext novel. Interesting idea. Reader gets to click through links, but it's a fairly limited degree of agency or power on the part of the reader. You get to make limited choices. <laughs> Moving over here, we think about marginalia, um, particularly libraries like the Bodleian that have book copies that have been used for centuries. You can see authors, uh, you can see readers disagreeing, making notes in the margins, saying rubbish. This is completely wrong. That's sort of evidence of readers writing back over a long period. Also, another sign of this um, creative urge on the part of readers is, is the phenomenon of published sequels or prequels. So a book like um, Jean Rhys's very famous Wide Sargasso Sea that writes back to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, that sees it from a post-colonial perspective. Or authors who uh, set their books as uh, predecessors or um, what happened next stories to say Gone with the Wind or Pride and Prejudice. This is again a sign of the reader becoming author. Further along towards the creative end, online fan fiction. A site like Fiction Alley is full of Harry Potter and Star Wars and Star Trek fan fiction where readers take the existing characters from narratives that are widely known in popular culture and reimagine them in different combinations of characters what would happen if Harry Potter fought with Frodo, who would win? That sort of, you know. no, I don't spend a lot of time reading this stuff, but I think it's conceptually interesting. What would happen if a romance happened between Snape and Luke Skywalker or something like that? So readers, readers insisting on using found cultural material for their own particular ends. And just to go back again there, um, and the idea of the network book as well. Um, which seems to be the most recent phenomenon, uh, example of this phenomenon. 
I'll just talk about what the network is in network book is in a bit more detail. Um, take an example like this, a book called Gamer Theory, written by uh, an expatriate Australian academic who now works in the US called Mackenzie Walk. And it's about cultural theory of computer games. But before this book was published by Harvard University Press, Walk collaborated with the Institute for the Future of the Book, which is based in Brooklyn, and uploaded the whole content of gamer theory onto the web. And he did it in these sort of subdivided nine chapters here uh, that you can see in the center of the screen. Now, the idea here is that internet browsers should read this content and comment on it, argue with it, disagree with it, rewrite it, and make it better. And then Walk was going to use the most insightful or the most interesting of these comments, incorporate them into the final draft of the book, and then use that uh, as the copy that was then published by Harvard University Press, which came out in 2007. So somewhat in the model of a wiki, you might think, Walk is using this collaborative and collective intelligence, the sort of wisdom of crowds ideas, to finesse his own popular culture analysis about computer gaming. But because I'm a cynical person, I note that all of the royalties from this book and all the prestige and all the promotion benefits seem to flow to the author alone. Uh, and the book is av available under a Creative Commons license on the net. Um, but even so, uh, I don't think any of the royalties will be shared in a socialist kind of manner with all the people who contributed. So this is in some ways allowing readers in, but still preserving the power of the author and the publisher to a certain extent. Maybe. Perhaps a more radical possibility of imagining how open access ideas and literary creativity could happen is the idea of the book as scrapbook. And this is an idea that derives from some historians of print culture, particularly Ellen Gruber-Garvey, the American academic who was here visiting Oxford Brooks in, the Juli in July. And what she noticed was the way that this 19th century craze for creating scrapbooks out of, say, newspaper clippings, photographs, trinkets, uh, allowed readers to enjoy some sort of power in an era that was overflowing with print culture for the first time. What it allowed them to do is collect and rearrange and stylize all of these ephemeral newspaper uh, clippings and to put them in the culturally esteemed format of a book. Uh, as she phrases it, the reader here became an author. People who had no access to publishing were suddenly able to, to get access for the first time. Now, I'm not suggesting you get the cut and uh, the scissors and the glue put out and do this sort of thing, but it's easy to imagine how this logic could be extended to a digital platform under something like Creative Commons licenses. All of those marginalia and writing back practices and fan fiction that we already see <coughs> in the book world could actually be freely deployed in a medium like this. And a scrapped work <coughs> digital book could also involve all of those audio and video and animation features that seem to be so promising for the hypertext book in the mid-1990s. And I think this is particularly interesting. If you come from a literary theory background, you'll, you'll know all those ideas about intertextuality, that stories are always drawing on other stories. We retell Homer's Odyssey over and over again in different cultures. And when literary theorists talk about the idea of intertextuality, they mean it just in terms of text. But if we start expanding that idea and thinking about this, digital novels or wiki novels or books as scrapbooks actually embody that intertextuality in their very format. 
not just the words they use, but the cut and paste technology that they're based on. This might sound a bit um, idealistic and far-fetched, but actually there's been some nice experiments this year doing exactly this. Um, in March, April this year, Penguin Books in London decided to trial a series of stories, a series of digital experiments called We Tell Stories. Do people come across this in the media at the time? Perhaps? But what they did was get um, six of their current authors to use six of their classic books and to rewrite them in interesting ways. And they did this actually, the head of Penguin was telling me at a conference, they did this because they thought Penguin had become so identified with its backlist of Penguin classics, people didn't see it being on the cutting edge anymore. So they really wanted to do this as a way of showing that they were getting behind digital technology. So they did, one of their authors told a story using Google Maps. These are all available online at the Penguin website if you want to follow them through, which starts at the new <coughs> St Pancras Eurostar terminal and then wanders all over the world. Similarly, another one of their authors creates a narrative out of um, blog postings and Twitter messaging. We use the technology to follow it through. Two of their extremely brave authors decided to write live online and edit while people watched, um, which is something I'd never do, but um, good luck to them. And, and then in this one, um, the former general, more like a choose your own adventure novel. It gives you some text here and at the left it says, you can choose either to reminisce about your childhood or on the right, you can choose to leave your office. I personally would always choose to leave my office, but um, these, these sort of flow diagram options you get to, narrate, uh, to narrate your way through the story. And their follow-up <coughs> experiment, A Million Penguins, a, a mass wiki novel done online. Uh, that could be mass edited in, in the Wikipedia model. Well, I'm where I'm, I'm getting very close to time, so this I'll just write. But where, where the title for this particular talk came <coughs> from was an Australian experiment that spins off the penguin we tell stories in interesting ways, um, and was an experiment called Remix My Lit that the Australia Council for the Arts funded. And what this wanted to do was, again, to use these collaborative rip and burn prosumer potentials in the architecture of the internet and apply them to fiction. It wanted to do what's been done with music sampling and fan filmmaking uh, and machinima, making movies out of bits of computer game. It wanted to take that logic and apply it to an area where it had barely been applied, namely literary fiction. And so what Remix My Lit involved was getting nine established Australian short story writers to write and post up a short story of their own, and then to invite the audience to rewrite the stories online, to mash them up, cut them, change the endings, reintroduce the characters from other stories, um, to, to mix, match, push and pull, and to create remixed works, according to the inventors of this. And then this is an interesting point. Unlike Penguin, where they were just leaving the stories online in a digital format, what Remix My Lit intends to do when the experiment finishes is take the best of the publicly submitted stories and to publish them in a hard copy book alongside the original stories. So it will have started in a codex format, gone digital, and come back into print. A bit like print on demand in a way, a hybrid mix of digital and codex. And this then will be accessible also under Creative Commons license um, uh, in an internet format. So all three of these experiments, Mackenzie Walk's Gamer Theory, Penguin's experiment We Tell Stories and the Australia Council's experiment 
with Remix My Lip. What all of these have in common is that they use recently developed technologies and they trumpet their groundbreaking innovation, which is all nice and good. But there's actually nothing new here in some ways because literature has always been characterized by these webs of influence between one book and another, these intertextual dialogues going on between cultures and spanning the ages. It's only that those characteristics of print culture we got so used to, intellectual property, individual attribution of one book to one author, and private profit, particularly in the publishing industry, seem to create the semblance of fixity that literature wasn't remixing and remashing all the time. It made us think it was more stable than it is. And what is so exciting about this new development is that now we can take what's always gone on in culture and perhaps start to see it happen at the level of the book technology itself in very interesting ways. So um, to sum up incredibly briefly, this will alarm lots of people, even though I think it's kind of exciting, but then you might say I'm not about to launch back into a publishing career, so it's all very well for me. Some of the questions it brings up immediately are, how would open access literary culture impact on writers? How would writers' livelihood take a hit if this were to become mainstream? But I would probably say to you, how many writers have ever been able to live on the income that their writing generated? Secondly, what would the effect of this be for readers? Would quality just plummet if suddenly everyone had access to these kinds of uh, self-publishing technologies? It's a possibility, but if we look at the way that um, the net has already used technologies like quoting, hypertext linking, uh, Google-style algorithms so that the best rises to the top, we might see that reading culture would be able to develop its own mechanisms for appreciation and esteem of digital books in this format. What would it mean for book reviewers? It'd certainly mean that book reviewing wouldn't just exist in the Sunday papers or the broadsheets, well, when they used to be broadsheets here. A whole culture of reviewing would also grow up in parallel online. Just in the way that Amazon Reader's Reviews are so popular, we'd start to see digital forms of review that piggyback on the kinds of review available in print culture. And also, the impact of this for other media industries could be very exciting. Content from books that have been remixed and mashed up online could start to become used as adaptation fodder for screen industries, computer game industries as well. And we might see that this reinstates the book at the heart of 21st century media culture, rather than the idea that the book is an aging and an obsolescent media that has no particular future. So despite the huge shakeup that these kinds of technologies might involve, I'd like to leave you with a, a final and an optimistic image and use this as, as a metaphor for thinking about this whole open access collaborative wisdom. This is a huge installation called the Great Wall of Books <coughs> that travels the world. It, it happened to be in Melbourne in the summer back in January, our summer back in January, but these photos are from when it was in Macau. And it travels around the world and it's 20, 15 metres high. It's very big and every one of these uh, bricks in its structure is a book. So when it comes to your city, there are desks and computers here, and you can write a book or add a book, and it will be built into the structure of this enormous traveling book, which is displayed in public places. And I actually find this a really positive metaphor. It's a way of thinking that, uh, in fact, an open access literary culture might enable us to see that each act of creativity is just a piecemeal contribution 
to an overarching literary sphere. And the words that we create are not, not necessarily something that we possess and that we can use copyright to exclude other people from having access to. But perhaps the words that we come up with are only fodder for other people's creativity in their turn. So I hope to leave you with that optimistic image uh, of, of what the open access literary future might involve. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simone. If you've got, um, if you don't mind, we'll perhaps take some comments and some questions for a few minutes before before we break. Thank you very much. That was a fascinating, very thought-provoking and provocative talk, particularly to a set of publishing students, encouraging you to think of a world uh, about without pub without publishers. But as Simone mentioned as well, she wanted to end on an optimistic note. So, can I invite any questions, comments that people have, Sam? Um, just want to ask about what you said at the very end about. Um, everything that we create is just kind of like a part of a whole. Do you not think, what do you think about the role of publisher in terms of um, separating like the bad from the good? So for example, it, I, don't, I don't really feel comfortable with the idea that someone like George Orwell or Shakespeare is just the same as some like random who writes on the internet, for example. Surely it's important to have publishers so that the import, that the very, very best works get the best coverage. Yeah. Was everyone at the back able to hear that well? Yeah. yeah. Look, this gatekeeper issue is a huge one, and it's what publishing has seen as its raison d'etre for so many centuries, although Shakespeare probably was, was out there publicly well before he got into print, but yeah, but the George Orwell point I, I take. I should make it clear here, I don't actually think that these sorts of digital open access experiments would eclipse traditional book publishing completely. I think what's much more likely is a complementary relationship between the two, where one builds on the other. So in a way, the gatekeeping role of, that publishers have enjoyed for so many centuries would continue and would mine maybe the best of what's coming up on the internet and then give it a kind of stamp of approval by also putting it in print culture. That's why that particular remix my lit experiments is interesting because it doesn't ultimately come to rest in the digital domain only, it comes back into print. So we might be able to see digital technologies almost as a research and development laboratory for some of the fiction that comes into print at the end of its life. But we should also think that things that are written in print are then used as fodder that feeds back into the digital world. So the media industries are unlikely to be engaged in a battle to the death where the new one kills the old one. I think it's much more likely that they'll learn to feed content to each other and filter content, just in the way that television and the internet have learned to coexist in some interesting ways. So thanks for your question. I could have made that point um, at more length possibly, but I don't see it as an either or situation. Print and gatekeepers, the, the pub print and the gatekeeping role of publishers will continue to be important. Okay, we're on the stroke of six o'clock, so perhaps we can thank Simone again very much and please do have a glass of wine. Thank you very much.